everyone welcome to antibodies this is our fourth buddy sode and joining me today is dr anthea wheel hey anthea hello <laughs> uh anthea she she finished her phd a year ago i think is that right i think we're at two years now oh yeah two two years ago she finished her phd and right now she is working in a biotech company uh anthea can you tell us something about yourself Yeah, so uh I am a PhD graduate uh from the University of Florida. I uh was in the microbiology and cell science department, but our main concentration was in immunology. Um and from there I've been having this wonderful ride of just this life science world that uh hopefully I can share some experience today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh are you uh, where are you right now? Are you in Ohio? Yeah, so I'm in Ohio. Um our biotech company is uh out here as well and we'll be having fun. Nice. How are you enjoying this quarantine period? Oh man, it's been a time. It's definitely been a time. Luckily, I can work from home. So uh, yep. a lot of the stuff I do is home-based. Well, since I'm working on my PhD, there's no way I can run experiments, but I'm doing a lot of reading and writing, so that's good. <laughs> you can start writing your dissertation. Yes. Right? <laughs> I don't even have my <laughs> <laughs> experiments done but I'll just write my dissertation. <laughs> It doesn't matter, just keep writing. <laughs> yeah. Just I'll just keep writing. All right. Today we are going to discuss a very interesting paper that I I, I so this paper was discussed in one of the journal clubs I attended last year and I have been meaning to uh discuss this on a podcast but I could not find a suitable co-host who has a good grasp on immunology. Thankfully, Ooh. Anthea is here today, so there'll be a fun discussion today. That's an honor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right before we start talking about this paper, I even discuss what the title is. There are certain uh keywords that we should describe because these are these are going to be important for people to understand during uh when we discuss the introduction of the article or even the results of the article. The first word that we are going to describe is primary and secondary infection. These are very basic this is a very basic terminology uh if you have taken any course of immunology. A primary infection is when you get infected by a pathogen like a let's say a bacteria, a virus for the first time in your life. This is different from something called a secondary infection where you get infected by that organism for a second time or a later time. The immune response to a primary in- uh, infection is completely different from an immune response to a secondary inf- infection. That's why these two are very important to distinguish. Uh Anthea, can you walk us through the second term? Oh sure. So uh our second term of the paper uh, highlights pretty uh broadly actually is a uh, gene knockout. So gene knockout is defined as a genetic technique uh that one would use on um an organism. It can be a bacteria, it can be uh heck even a virus at times, it can be a mammalian cells. Uh but when you um administer this technique, it's to make a gene of interest inoperative. right mm-hmm. so the gene works primarily and then if you knock out this gene now it doesn't work so it's inoperated um there are different ways to actually um insert a inoperative 
technique uh, towards a gene, uh, but for the most part in general, we'll just say knockout gene yeah. expressions. <laughs> just for simplification, we'll uh, use the word joint gene knockout. Uh, it's a great tool to study what the gene does because you can delete it and see how the organism reacts to that. Yes. Next, which is the next term, which is about the central point of this whole paper is dietary restriction. Dietary restriction is, in simple terms, it's dieting. When you have when you have uh, reduced your food intake, it's called dietary restriction. In this in this article, we're going to see a lot of this. Anthea, can you tell us what's the next term? So our next term is chemokine. Uh, this paper uh, really goes in depth into the chemokines that are used on this scientific project. But for simplistic terms, chemokine is a chemical messenger that actually attracts white blood cells to the site of injury, right? So if you tell a cell what to do, how does it know where to go as far as the site of injury goes? So it will secrete these chemokines to say, hey, come over this way, this is where the injury is occurring. So it's kind of like breadcrumbs, right? Mm -hmm. If you think of it like that. Yep, thanks, that's, that's a perfect definition. It's like breadcrumbs. Our <laughs> next type, next definition is memory T cells. As you would expect from the name, these are T cells that act as the memory of the immune system. They are generated during the primary response and they act during the secondary infection. So again, the primary is when they are they take birth, the secondary infection when they start getting into action. In this article, we're going to see four kinds of memory uh, cells, memory T cells being discussed. And I'll be honest, Unless you are, unless you're majoring in immunology, unless you are an, a scientist, you will actually not going to need to know these, but still I'll discuss them. There are broadly speaking, there are two types of memory T cells. They'll be, uh, they'll be circulating memory T cells and they'll be tissue, uh, they'll be resident T cells. Circulating T cells are those that go through the, go through the bloodstream, they can go through tissues, but they, they often come back to secondary lymphoid organs like lymph nodes or spleen just to get uh, either get stimulated again or for some time of quiet and peace. On the other side, there are resident T cells which stay in the tissues and these T cells usually lack certain kind of genes that allow them to go back to the secondary lymphoid organs. But for for this for this paper, we we'll just be going through what uh, what kind of different T cells are were found in these uh, in differently treated mice. In the end, the last yeah the last thing that we want to discuss is adipogenesis. Okay, so uh, a bit of a tongue twister. Adipogenesis um, is a process in which you want to uh, accumulate or differentiate adipocytes, right? So adipocytes are uh, commonly known as fat cells, uh, but you have two different types of adipose tissue. You have either uh, brown adipose, um, right, sites, am I saying that right? Yeah, or, <laughs> or bats or you have uh, white adipocytes. Uh, so brown adipose uh, cells actually play a large role in thermal energy um, as far as insulation goes. And you have your uh, white adipose tissue which helps to store energy. So it's an energy storage um, site. So uh, during adipogenesis, 
you have um, a a birth as you can think of or a birth of adipose tissue um, or a generation of adipose tissue that will become pre-adipose and then when it's exposed to certain environments it'll become mature adipose tissue that's it thank thanks a lot Anthea with that we are ready to dive into this paper actually this paper if you if you actually want to go through each and every experiment there is a lot of very nice details however just because of the time constraint and i know that not everybody wants to know each, each and every detail we'll just try to talk about the things that we found were important and the reason why we chose this paper so anthea are you ready Let, shall we dive into the paper i'm ready jatin the title of the article that we're going to discuss today is the bone marrow protects and optimizes immunological memory during dietary restriction and the first author is let me quickly check it's nicholas collins and the lead author is yasmin belcade I, I i know that she has published a lot of studies uh with uh, with uh, t she has been a veteran in this in this field in yep in the, in this article we're going to talk a lot about dietary restriction but overall um wh- uh, why even worry about dietary restriction that's a really good um, question. So uh, in my experience with uh, all the immunological disease systems that I've worked with over the years, um, diet, diet rather in general plays a huge impact on how um, you, your body interacts with the environment. Right, so one element that the paper doesn't necessarily expound greatly on, but uh, that is a well-known fact is that microbiota or the gut flora um, of a human or a person or mouse or whatever the subject is, actually plays a huge role in how the immune system tends to interact uh, with any foreign pathogen or offense. So that's one thing to keep in mind. So the only way to actually introduce um, any outside environment like microbes into the system is by eating things, right? Is by consuming them. And uh, which plays a huge role again on uh, this, just this diet and this immune paradigm. That's right. Yeah. Uh, the diet a lot affects what kind of microbiome your gut will inhabit. Cor- correct. <laughs> Interesting fact, actually, there was a study that showed that uh, mice who develop psoriasis actually can skew uh, the psoriasis onset and the severity by uh, adopting a Western diet, oh. you know, and a, oh, I'm sorry, a Mediterranean diet. Oh yeah, I've heard, I've heard a lot of, uh, I mean, I haven't read any of the studies about Mediterranean diets, but I've heard a lot yeah. about how these are useful in different uh, scenarios, especially even, even a stress. I've, I found that yeah. it was reducing suicide rates and stress in some cohorts oh absolutely absolutely so mediterranean mediterranean diets actually have uh high concentrations of fatty oils uh essential oils different nutrients um and well now i'm getting hungry (laughs) for (laughs) some type of mediterranean plate but um but yeah so it actually plays a huge role in uh skewing this uh micro biotic flora composition to uh prevent the onset rather of um psoriasis yep that, that, that's a very cool studies on different kinds of diets 
and oh, and yeah. here we are going to discuss what if people have less food <laughs> instead of having a different kind of food we have uh, data i mean there are literature literature published that shows that dietary restriction that is cutting down on the intake of calories can cause can change your metabolic profiles it can prevent cellular aging and it can and in some cases it also reduces incidences of cancer i know sometimes people yep. go on a fast uh, during cancers because presumably that's going to starve your cancer as well and <laughs> and the interesting thing in this article is that we're going to see a similar thing about cancers but not by starving the tumor in a different way Oh yeah, and also just to sympathize more with uh cancer patients, they go through very aggressive treatment um a lot of times and they tend to lose the uh their appetite. Oh yes. I I actually do not know anybody in my family who has cancer. Um fortunately, I would say, but I Yeah, thank yeah, God. <laughs> I can imagine it would be a very tough uh tough lifestyle if you have cancer, you have to go through chemo and you know that there are no there is no magic treatment available that'll cure you for sure no you're right and uh, a lot of times this aggressive treatment really plays a huge role on um their just desire to eat after as well they uh, I, i've also heard that um they have high sensation of nausea after immediately after uh chemotherapy as well too so Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I so <laughs> so may, maybe maybe there is a uh fine medium between overeating and not eating at all between uh going through uh some stages of this. Yeah, I I'm extremely interested uh in in cancers actually. I've, I've I I read a lot of cancers for not being in cancer biology field and the the newly the new field of immuno cancer immunotherapy is very exciting. Oh yeah, but but you know what uh what's often said because I know you work a lot with autoimmune diseases is that uh a lot of autoimmune diseases or researchers who work in autoimmune diseases have actually a nice understanding of uh how cancer regulates because it's a sense of being opposite yeah. of each other, right? It's like the opposite <laughs> spectrum. <laughs> Yeah, a lack of immune responses versus hyperimmune responses. So I think the two more the two worlds should merge uh, a bit more often. Yeah, and they're so interrelated because you see normally people don't get cancer. It's not that cells don't make errors in their during the replication. It's just that our immune system is naturally equipped to get rid of these cells, but in certain people who have genetic susceptibility they are somehow not able to get rid of these so just learning about our immune system what genes do what kind of uh, functions can actually help us understand what causes cancers a, a lot more so i feel this uh, the immunological research field is so intertwined with cancer that it clearly right. explains why there is a lot of funding in both of these fields and the funding <laughs> and, and coming back to our paper which is yeah we 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 digressed a little bit <laughs> <laughs> we can talk all day about yeah, it yeah <laughs> i i i love re- uh, uh, talking about cancers man <laughs> yeah something to discuss about is white adipose tissues white adipose tissues they are a kind of uh they're they're kind of endocrine organs 
they secrete they, they secrete uh, growth factors they even harbor cells uh, for example it's known that memory T cells like to stay in uh, white adipose tissues. There's even a local regulated T cell populations that stay inside uh, white adipose tissues. Did you know about that? So I did read an article and that's very interesting because I did read an article uh, about having um, different mitochondria actually uh, responses in the white adipose tissue as opposed to uh, other areas of the body. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I can I can imagine that, right? You have a, a, a endless supply of mitochondria pumping energy cells. <laughs> I want to stay yeah. there too, right? <laughs> yeah, these, these, there's, I mean, I, I did not know about, I did not know about the role of adipose tissue in our immunology, in, in like the, the whole immune system until last uh, was it last year 2019 yeah i think it was last year uh, i went to this conference uh in boston about immuno immunometabolism in in immunity uh it was hosted by abcams and i saw so many people talk about white adipose tissues in that conference oh, wow. that i figured out yeah they i should not have ignored these yeah. i had no clue i mean the first thing that i i asked in, as a question in the conference is what is an what, what is a white adipose tissue because th those people just thought that everybody knows about mm. it and i got very strange looks <laughs> in that conference <laughs> right i can imagine i yeah. can imagine yeah after since then since then i have explored a completely new area of immunology which is immunometabolism and i i am loving this field it actually explains a lot about why cells behave the way they do, yeah. why memory cells are uh, a little quiescent while effector T cells are so aggressive. Yeah, and it, it plays a role in about 20% of the body's weight, actually, 25% in females, but uh, it plays a 20-25% oh. um, composition of the ad overall adipose tissue or the overall weight in humans. And not in, I'm sorry, <laughs> let me say <laughs> that again. So in healthy, uh, non-overweight humans, white adipose tissue is actually about 20 to 25%, whether male or female, uh, in total body weight. Yep. And this is slightly different from brown fat, which is a source of energy. Brown fat, uh, it's, it's, I think there's another fat, you know what? There's another fat called beach fat, and I'm not sure if brown fat and beach, beach fat are very different. So if anybody who is an expert in this area, please pardon me. But I know that brown fat can also be used as a source of uh, energy by heat production. Right. So, and that is, brown fat is usually referred to as the good fat because that's the one you burn when you exercise. And there, there is a protein in mitochondria. And thanks to this conference again that I know about this <laughs> protein called un uncoupling protein one, UCP one, which mitochondria uses to turn uh, to use uh, energy from burning this fat that's that's pretty cool yeah yeah and it's uh, actually been well established as an important fat deposit in both postnatal babies um, as well as well as a variety of mammals Ooh, yeah nice <laughs> all right coming back to our paper we so in in this article the big question that they want to ask is what happens in the immunological responses when mice are treated are given 50% of their regular diet so there's on one hand there is the diet called ad libitum ad libitum stands for as per your liberty or as you want 
which means mice can eat as much as they want. On the other side, there is dietary restriction, which is 50% of ad libitum. So whatever these mice would normally have, the, uh, this group would be given 50% of that. And with that, that's the big question. So are you ready to uh, find out what these guys observed? Let's dive in. Let's start. So the first thing that are in the supplemental, usually I don't read supplemental, but they, I should read more <laughs> supplemental. <laughs> anyway, they, they, they find that, of course, as you would expect, uh, after one week of dietary restrictions, uh, these mice lose weight, they have reduced fat deposits, and they have reduced cellularity. That means reduced natural killer cells, B cells, regulatory T cells, uh, general conventional T cells, in the blood, white adipose tissues, and secondary lymphoid organs. So all of these things is something you might expect. I mean, if, even if it's not, you don't expect, you might not be surprised by these things. Yeah, that's not surprising. Uh, yeah, and if you look at the ages of these mice, uh, Antia, do you have any comment? Yeah, so I was noticing that uh, the mice that they use were uh, female mice from 6 to 24 weeks of age. So one thing I want to point out to all you future research great scientists <laughs> is that uh, one female mice actually develop um, disease in most disease states, uh, more robust expression. So uh, lots of people like to use female mice. Uh, two, six to 24 weeks is a pretty broad range, honestly, to do experiments um, under. But uh, when you think about the lifespan of mice, um, at about three weeks or 21 days, they are weaned from mom, right? So they're considered, you know, kind of teenage-ish. <laughs> and so uh, from six to nine weeks, they uh, reach their max of um, adolescent years, which is an optimal age range of studying a lot of mice. So when you go over nine weeks, they're considered more older mice, uh, especially in a 20 weeks age. But uh, as we go through the paper, maybe we'll get some understanding as to the development of these memory T cells, because as we know, uh, they have a cap two in their memory responses. So maybe that's something that they're kind of looking at, but just that's, that's one thing yeah. you should keep in mind. Thanks for that insight. I, I, I almost missed yeah. uh, about the ages until you pointed it out. And yeah, that's a huge oh, yeah. range. <laughs> Usually people keep them age matched just so that there is not a lot of background. Right, right. Cause as you age, uh, your thymus actually mm -hmm. shrinks in size, therefore T-cell development uh, is starting to reduce after a certain age. So that's one thing you want to keep in mind when we think about memory T-cell responses too. Right, that, that, that's right. Uh, and coming to the beefy part of this paper, the, the interesting part, uh, while all this time we saw that these dietary restricted animals had reduced cellularity, there was one place where the cells were actually increasing and that was bone marrow. They found that there were increased increase in antigen experienced, which is just another word for memory. T-cells, both CD8 positive and 4 positive in the bone marrow during dietary restriction, they looked at the, the femur, tibia, skull, the vertebrae, the humerus and ilium and they found that all of these places there were increased uh, memory T-cells. So that is exciting. All big bones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All some of the larger bones of yes. the body too, by the way. So that, that's exciting. You would. This is something that you would not expect during dietary restriction. 
and from this point they are they are making trying to ask what is making what's changing in this organism that making these cells go to the uh, bone marrow and remember only the cytotoxic and helper T cells experience and the antigen experience T cells when there there were no changes in the B cells T-Rex or natural killer cells that were in the bone marrow they even confirmed this by taking different mice and first giving them a primary infection of Yersinia pseudotuberculosis or uh, intranasal influenza A virus then they gave them then they either transferred them to dietary restriction or just kept them at ad libitum diet and gave them a secondary infection we did discuss that right yes we discussed that <laughs> secondary yeah. infection yeah. and what and they if they found that during secondary in- infection the mice that were given dietary restriction that were on dietary restriction their t cells did go back to bone marrow so they're just uh, re i think reproducing whatever they found in yeah. a infection so model. yes so let's put it in the context to uh, Jatin. You said that it is redistributed in the bone marrow, right? So hopefully the listeners know that um, for any hematopoietic stem cell, that's any white blood cell, they uh, are derived from the bone marrow. That's right. So there'll be these naive cells in the bone marrow and they'll be um, educated outside of the bone marrow right so they're naive in the bone marrow they'll travel to the second lymphoid tissue whether it's the lymph nodes or the thymus or the spleen Mm -hmm. um, and they will then be educated or matured in those secondary uh, lymphoids that is right right so to see a high population of these memory t cells to go back into the bone marrow that's saying that they're re-educating or uh, wanting to kind of conjure up this new army uh, to go on and create this memory response towards a specific uh, antigen. Yeah, bone marrow is like a mother organ. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like they're scared and they want to go back to their mom. Yeah, right. And in, in some cultures, <laughs> because in in some cultures mm-hmm. they actually uh, eat the bone marrow as a delicacy. Yeah, for lots of health reasons, too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and coming back with this, they also find that they're increased. They found that the circulating circulating memory T cells accumulate in in the bone marrow, but they still maintain their ability to go to the go to different organs and just to re- recapitulate we found we discussed that there were three kinds of circulating memory t cells there were one one the central memory t second peripheral memory t and then the effector memory t so they found that only effector memory and central memory t cells were increased in the bone marrow not the resident memory and peripheral memory so remember resident memory are not circulating to begin with Peripheral memory, this is a kind of intermediate phenotype that I, I haven't read a lot of papers about it to know, uh, to explain too much though. And there are certain markers that I'm not going to discuss how the, they were gated on, just to keep it simple. So here, uh, they also, just to confirm that there were not any changes in cytokines and the transcription factors of these uh, in memory T cells, uh, the authors looked at it and they, they found no differentially expressed markers. So that's good.
Mm-hmm. That is right. And then coming back to the part where I start doubting why I bec- I am going to be a scientist. <laughs> they are using this this thing right from a horror movie called Parabiotic Pairs. And yeah, do you want to explain that or should I? Okay, I don't know man, this thing, this thing is going to be very controversial. I know it's very well used, it's not like something they're doing unethically, of course they have to get ethical clearance to do this, but it's just, I feel, I, I read something, an experiment like this and I feel we are, <laughs> we are very close to playing gods. So in, in parabiosis experiments, in, in mice what happens is you take two mice which are congenic, that means they are uh, supposedly the same uh, genetic uh, they have the same genetic composition except for one gene uh, in this case they have uh, one mouse would have CD45.1 which is CD45 is a phosphatase that's present on lymphocytes and there's another CD45.2 which is another mouse so these 0.1 and 0.2 symbiotic mi- uh, not symbiotic sorry congenic mice they will be somewhat sewed together i think through their around their uh, stomach side and in in a way that their cells can actually travel from one mouse to the other so they are a, a, in in a way the, a single organism now did, did I explain that right? Yes, you explained that perfectly, actually, Jatin. It's really an experiment that uh, not many people that I have seen uh, in literature just explore entirely yet, but it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely an interesting way to approach the science. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's very good for the science, just makes me doubt myself sometimes. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> get it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's leaving humanity aside, uh, we we find out that when these mice are parabiotically joined um, and use, uh, we see that about one week after dietary uh, restriction these memory t-cells that went to the bone marrow actually come out and start uh, start uh, circulating again so you see CD45.1 positive memory t-cells circulating in the other mouse which is which has CD45.2 cells, and you that that's what, that way you know that there are circulating cells from you know, one mouse to other. Yeah. Who? So when you think about some of the studies that uh, we do in humans, which we definitely can't <laughs> sew together <laughs> any, oh, no, that, any parts you, of each other to create you, some type of immunity across the board. but um, You just described a new Netflix series. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. on its way. We, we might need to coin that one, Jatin. <laughs> but when you think about uh, how we do some studies where uh, if you have a baby, number one, we'll call it baby number one, and you take mm. the uh, uh, the placenta and the umbilical cord and you actually store the stem cells that are within baby number one sac 
And whenever you have baby number two, if there is ever any uh, genetic or uh, diseases that arises, uh, lots of times they can go back to the stem cells in baby one or vice mm -hmm. versa, baby two, uh, to treat baby number one as well. Would you kind of put that maybe in the same category? I know, I know the uh, mouse experiment is a bit more crude, but uh, when you think about sharing this just immunity across the board is that something you categorize so for, for that the, the the biggest uh constraint would be that the baby number one and baby number two i don't think they will be congenic right uh, because yeah first of all they won't be congenic at best if there are monozygotic twins they could be syngenic that means the complete uh genetic material is the same but it, let's assume there are monozygotic twins and you transfer cells from one to other that i i think i would be much more okay with that kind of experiment assuming assuming we have evidence and assuming this uh, these babies are in some fatal condition that they're going to die anyway in that in that condition we might be able to experiment it's just so difficult with with yeah with all the ethics around that we want to yeah we don't we don't want to come out as as doing something that's can does is not required we don't want to harm these babies i mean eventually that's the main uh, motive you don't if we don't experiment on humans because we don't know what these experimentation is going to do to them and if something happens who's going to bear the responsibility yeah that's true that's true uh, but i think i think because of modern technology today we have came across a lot of uh, different techniques that we can use that are more ethically sound, even in animals mm -hmm. as well. You know, like fecal transplants. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you know, to fecal transplants. That's I, I want. I want. I want. Actually, people are already doing fecal transplants, right? I. I I've heard poop pills. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> yes, yes. There's actually a study. Uh, or, well, rather a story rather that um, there's a medical physician who had psoriasis who actually um, surveyed and like, like very distinctively picked out um, a person X, we'll say, mm -hmm. <laughs> to mm -hmm. actually take their uh, uh, feces to administer her own uh, fecal transplant and it ameliorated I say that word right it that, that's a hard word yes. to say I, I, I feel you <laughs> that completely destroyed um no sorry another word relieved that swatched that completely <laughs> cleared her psoriasis so fecal oh. transplant from a healthy uh non-overweight person actually help clear her psoriasis and they actually say if you take fecal transplants from a person who is overweight um you start to gain weight as well too crazy right oh, oh wait <laughs> wait did, how did they administer the feces was it i don't think i asked any further questions after oh, that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean i would have to yeah, somebody would have to pay me a million dollars to Oh yeah. Administer. I would rather die of psoriasis, man. I don't <laughs> want this kind of thing in my life. For a million, I'm, I might have to consider that, though, Jatin. Add a little salt and pepper on it. It might, you know, be a different thing. Uh, yeah, or, or you, you got to mix it with something very. Yeah. Just, <laughs> I don't see it. A you, slush. You definitely, yeah, some uh, some smoothie. <laughs> okay. Coming coming back to our paper. 
so the the whole purpose of this parabolic experiment is just to show that these memory T cells they're not permanently residing in the bone marrow. They're still functional. They just went there transiently, right. but they are back and they are ready to work function. And next, why or what is the what is the cause for these cells to go back to the bone marrow? And here, uh, the authors find out that in these dietary restricted uh, mice, there is a huge spike in the concentration of glucocorticoids, which are made by the adrenal gland in the blood. So your blood has high glucocorticoids, uh, which by the way, glucocorticoids are, are have been since a long time used as an anti-inflammatory drugs because they suppress uh, immune response. So that means high uh, glucocorticoids in bloods, blood explains why there are fewer cells uh, in the spleen and the blood. However, there was lower glucocorticoid concentration in the bone marrow, in fact, lower than baseline. That means there is a change in dynamics. Suddenly, the lower bone marrow corticoid is, is providing a suitable niche to these uh, memory T cells to go there. Although that still doesn't explain why are they going there, but it's, it explains how are they surviving there compared to uh, in, being in spleen or blood. Yeah, I'm not able to, I guess, provide much information about how the glucocorticoid, uh, uh, steroid, oh, Lord. Glucocorticoids. Yeah. <laughs> glucocorticoid receptors. Uh, oh, God, I'm done. <laughs> okay, so I'm not able to provide much information on why the uh, glucocorticoid steroids corticoids this would be Gluco this would go into the bloopers yes Gluc if i had any <laughs> glucocorticoid okay so i'm not able to provide much information on the glucocorticoid it's fine i'll take it from here okay yeah. yeah go ahead i was <laughs> anyway. gonna add a paper that i read about information in that but go ahead <laughs> you, you you can call it gc for now that's <laughs> we'll, we'll understand but yeah, so just to confirm that the glucocorticoids were the reason behind this, they they removed the adrenal glands. God, <laughs> they, they, they took mice and they removed their adrenal glands. It's called adrenalectomy. And guess what? When the adrenal glands are removed from the dietary restricted mice, they no longer have migration to bone marrow. So I guess the, uh, one part of the figure, one part of the picture is that these, this glucocorticoid is helping or somewhat somehow it's inducing uh, these uh, memory T cells to go to the bone marrow without the glucocorticoids in the blood they all stay where they are in fact they even administered a synthetic glucocorticoid which is dexamethasone a commonly used drug in rheumatoid arthritis and they saw that just by giving dexamethasone a lot of dexamethasone uh, there were memory T cells going to the bone marrow. So I, I really like this experiment. Oh yeah. There's actually a paper by uh, Balagir et al. Uh, mm -hmm. that talks about glucosteroid. Uh, GC, we'll stick to GC. Let me start over. <laughs> there is actually a study by uh, Balagir et al. that talks about these GC receptors controlling intestinal uh, stat one and interferon induced inflammation in mice. So oh. when you think about uh, this ability of these GCs to actually kind of 
dampen those inflammatory responses or at least control those inflammatory responses in the gut too. You know, let, how does that conversation play a role in the context of actually um, inducing these dietary restrictions, right? <laughs> yes. That, uh, can, you, can you send me that article? I have so far, I have not been able to find any link between glucocorticoid receptors and uh, jack stat signaling. So that'll be pretty cool. I've been wanting to see if there is any link there. Oh, sure, sure. Okay, and yeah, just talking about GC receptors, they actually also generated mice which had GC receptor knockouts. Remember the word knockouts and he explained it? Yep. These mice did not have the gene that, uh, uh, or yeah, they were removed their genes for GC receptor. In this case, is NR3C1 was removed and guess what these mice did not show this phenotype where memory t cells go to the bone marrow so they have explained in every possible way now that this receptor signaling the glucocorticoid and the gc receptor signaling is required for uh, for for us to see these memory t cells migrate to the bone marrow so that's pretty cool and now we go to the next one in the in the next figure they show there's a complete remodeling of the bone marrow uh during uh dietary restriction so here we have some rna seq data which is a lot of data and i i like rna seq data because there's too much information but that's the same reason why i hate rna seq data yeah. <laughs> because there's too much information you don't know where to focus on that's why you have these uh, statistical uh, techniques of uh dimensionality reduction that show you where to focus on the most important part but yeah not going too much into details they had about three three thousand nine hundred and eighty one differentially expressed genes and a lot of these genes were associated with adipogenesis which also anti-explained means uh genesis or the birth of fatty tissues so what else will we see here uh, Anthea, do you want to tell us about the CXCL12? What is this? So CXCL12 is actually uh, one of those chemokines that we talked about earlier. So again, chemokines are the chemical messengers like the breadcrumbs that helps to attract other immune cells to the site of injury or inflammation. Uh, and the CXCL12 is actually a stromal cell derived factor one cell which plays mm -hmm. a uh, huge role in activating leukocytes. Okay. Also, CXCL12 is, uh, is it's made in bone marrow. Its receptor, CXCL12, its receptor is CXCR4. Any cell that expresses CXCR4 will be uh, attracted towards CXCL12. So the two places where I have seen uh, CXCL12 being made, one is bone marrow, the other is extra follicular B cell responses. So there is a follicular B cell response, which uh, through which the germinal center B cells are produced. There's also an extra follicular B cell response. That's where CXCL12 is made to attract extra follicular B cells there. Uh, in case. I don't think that was required, but I just told that anyway. <laughs> Thanks, because uh, I completely drew a blank. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and there comes the cool part in here. They find so they found that there was an upregulation of CXCL12. The reason why I even took about talk about that in in bone marrow. So that explains why uh, how cells could be going. However, we still want to check for CXCR4. 
and we we show that uh, in in this experiment the the authors remove CXCR4 from these mice and they find that without CXCR4 the migration to CX uh, to bone marrow is also disrupted. That means CXCL12 and CXCR4 interaction is one of the ways that's required for uh, the memory T cells to go there. So that's that's pretty cool. We now know a chemokine pathway. Now the the another cool thing that this paper is full of, full of so many cool things. I'm running out of words. Uh, <laughs> they they find increased red blood cells in the bone marrow. And usually, I, if so, if I was the author of this paper and I found red blood cells increase, first of all, I don't even know why I would be looking at red blood cells. <laughs> <laughs> but but assuming these guys looked at red blood cells, which is great. Uh, they found increase in red blood cells in bone marrow and it turns out red blood cells carry another chemokine on them which is called S1P, sphingosine 1-phosphate I think? Oh man, I'll quickly check yep. what the P stands for. Is it phosphate? Yep, phosphate. Alright, sphingosine 1-phosphate which is a ligand for the chemokine receptor sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor, SIPR and guess which kind of cells express SIPR? Our and yeah, you have to guess this. <laughs> Our T cells? Yes, memory T cells, <laughs> and you win $2 <laughs> of Walmart gift card. <laughs> I'll be expecting that in the mail. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> don't. don't, don't. <laughs> Anyway, so that's another link. We already know that CXCL12 and CXCR4 is one of the ways how these cells are going there. And also, too, uh, S1P1 is actually crucial towards the exit of these T cells from the thymus to these peripheral lymphoid organs. Okay, yes, uh, S1P, S1PR is also an in important egress uh, receptor that lets them uh, get out of lymph nodes and, as Antia said, thymus. So not only there are there, so red blood cells these are like boxes carrying a lot of s1p any cells that are positive for s1p1r is going to get attracted towards them so we got two chemokine receptors and ligands that are helping in this um in this migration and of course as you would expect they in the, the authors blocked S1P1R using a drug. In fact, there's, you know what? S1P1R blockade is actually a therapy for um, multiple sclerosis because it prevents these lymph no uh, these T cells that are stuck in the lymph node from getting out and causing trouble in the brain. <laughs> so yeah, they use this block. This uses a blocking molecule, and they found that when you block S1P1R, it also reduces migration. So these are that's that's a really good clue there. Right. So it serves uh, almost like an uh, immunosuppressor. Yes, almost like an immunosuppressor. Next, so we know we know that glucocorticoids are doing this. We know that these two chemokines, the CXCR, CXCL12, and S1P, these two chemokines are the reason why these uh, MRT cells are attracted. Next, we want to know what was all that with the upregulation of adipogenesis genes. Are is this adipocytes? Are these adipocytes important? So they find that there, as you would expect, there's upregulation of adipogenesis genes. So there's also in the increased 
adipogenesis itself there are more adipocytes in the bone marrow while the whole other the, while the rest of the body is reducing their adipocyte count during dietary restriction chitin do you know of any ways <laughs> that we can differentiate between um white adipose tissue and brown adipose tissue so i actually don't know any markers that differentiate them but i and i know that uh white adipose tissue is more of an endocrine organ that makes factors that is a kind of a it provides a good environment for uh, these memory t cells to to stay there it it has its it has its own niche like there are cells growing around uh, white adipose tissues that thrive on the factors that it produces on the other side brown adipose tissue is less of an endocrine organ and more of an energy source and that's up to my knowledge anyway uh, we we find that there is increased adipogenesis in these um, in these bone marrows and when you delete adipocytes in the bone marrow tada what did you expect anthea that's another question for 2 dollar walmart gift card <laughs> could you repeat the question please yes when you delete adipocytes in the bone marrow what do you expect are these memory t cells going to stay there or not your time starts right now they are not going to stay there and you get another sham $2 gift card from me <laughs> <laughs> i'll send it to you you just need to send me your credit card details <laughs> anyway so memory t cells are not uh, they are not in uh staying there when adipocytes are absent it tells you that these adipocytes are required so they don't didn't dig too much into detail what these adipocytes are doing exactly but we we know that they are required for the memory t cell uh i think uh, sustenance in the bone marrow next part which we which i saw this coming a long time even before i was reading this paper talking about the metabolism of t cells these adipocytes or everything around that uh, bone marrow is definitely providing some kind of a different uh, niche where the metabolism is changed in these memory t cells and that's exactly what they find these memory t cells have reduced uh, oxygen uh, consumption rate which correlates with oxidative phosphorylation and they also have reduced markers of glycolysis so i in my opinion this th these are so as, as the authors say they they are in an energy conversation conservation state in my opinion these memory t cells uh look a lot like naive t cells because naive t cells in in i mean metabolically have a very low rate of oxidative phosphorylation as well as glycolysis so that's pretty cool and it, it shows that these memory t cells they have found a way to conserve energy uh while being in the uh, bone marrow that's exactly what you need when you are on dietary restriction yes so they also looked at uh some very relevant markers uh like the mTOR1 and the PAKT and the PS6 um which i think will be a great discussion for next time uh, but this definitely plays a huge role in uh, why these memory responses are actually in this state of energy conservation. It's, it's, it's very interesting to talk about how the mTORC1 AKT pathway is affecting all this. It's just we are, <laughs> we are over time today. But yeah, let's move to the last figure. I'm excited. This is the, the meat of this paper. That's the whole uh, reason why anybody should be interested in knowing this.
yes and that's so cool so they're effectively saying that the, the, under dietary restriction these memory t cells are doing better than yeah much better than those t cells how much better are they doing so they're actually doing remarkably uh, well. These mice on the dietary restriction actually uh, during the second challenge has enhanced ability to actually control the infection with 500 fold fewer colonies forming units, so CFUs. That's, that's 500 fewer CFUs than those mice uh, given ad libitum diet. Yes. That is so counterintuitive. Yeah, so they're <laughs> creating this enhanced protection uh, that has been observed when these secondary or oral secondary challenged mice. Yeah, and just to be clear, they mentioned that this only this enhancement only works when the dietary restriction is during the secondary challenge and not during the primary challenge. Correct. And what else now coming to the oh yeah also these uh, these memory T cells from in the dietary restricted mice in this uh, they have they produce a lot more interferon gamma. And interferon gamma is a great cytokine to get rid of intracellular pathogens like Yersinia tuber pseudotuberculosis. Correct. So it all makes sense, yeah. And just to be, just to make sure that this enhancement was due to the ability of these uh, of these memory T cells to go to the bone marrow, they also gave S1P1R the a blockade, which is the sphingosine mm -hmm. one phosphate one receptor blockade to reduce the memory T cells ability to go to the bone marrow and they found that when this treatment is given alongside dietary restriction they the reduced clearance uh, does not work as much as well so it shows that there's something in the bone marrow which it, it's enhancing these cells when when they're going there so it's 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 so exciting to find out that there's something like that and we still don't know everything because in this paper they just they, they have only showed what all causes these cells to go there and i'm not i'm not blaming them at all of course they showed a lot of things that just means there is so much more for us to know it is it is and you know when you put it in mind of uh cancer vaccinations actually right mm -hmm. you know there's a there's no patent approved or FDA approved uh, cancer vaccinations on the market yet. But when you think about um, administering cancer vaccinations, these memory T cells already play a role in healthy individuals with uh, tracking down cancerous cells, getting rid of that pathogen or those infected cells, and uh, now being able to amount a secondary response afterwards. So if you create a vaccination that can actually prime the system or these memory T cells in the future, like they've done in this study, you know, we know the method or mechanisms of actions uh, through the bone marrow, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, there's a lot of implications for of this study on, as you said, cancer vaccination, and probably also on just pathogen uh, vaccination yeah right? yeah that's so cool last uh, last thing in uh, alongside alongside pathogen a better pathogen clearance they also check in a tumor clearance model so in this one they are going to induce melanoma and also alongside a melanoma they're adding these cells called pmel1 uh, cd8 positive t cells pmel1 is just a i think it's a name of the clone which expresses a uh, uh, MHC1 that is specific to this uh, 
peptide of a of GP100. GP100 is a, a protein that is expressed by a melanoma cell line called B16. So the whole model is set up is that you have mice that when inject when injected with this B16 melanoma cells, they die by 26 days. However, if you inject these PML1 cells, they still die because these PML PML1 cells uh while they are specific to the antigens on the tumor, they are still not stimulated ones. So in, in essence, they are naive T-cells still. Yep. So when you add PML1 alongside a vaccinia virus, which, which uh, has GP100, which has a GP100 protein, similar to that of the melanoma, the vaccinia virus primes or stimulates these PML1 so that they become memory T-cells. And when you give these PML1 with the vaccinia virus, which makes the memory, and now these memory T cells, when they encounter the melanoma, these mice live longer. So that's the whole model of this uh, this, this melanoma uh, tumor in in that are used in the study. What they find out that the mice that are given, so yeah, just to backtrack, there's a lot of details, right? So mice plus the tumor cells, they die in 26 days mice plus the pml1 they still die because these pml1 cells are not um, yet stimulated however mice with pml1 plus the vaccinia virus and the tumor they survive better because of the memory response yep. and then for the dietary restriction the, uh, coming to dietary restriction they find that even without the pml1 cells just the mice with the dietary restriction and the tumor these That's mice great. lived longer. Yeah. Live way longer. <laughs> so they lived they lived about as much as the regular ad libitum mice with the vaccinia virus and the tumor and the PML1. So right. just and dietary a, restriction itself. And about fifteen percent of those mice um were completely tumor-free more that's, than yeah, two months. <laughs> so that's in the second one. That's in the second one. The mice which received dietary restriction as well as the vaccinia virus and the PML1 cells, so now they have everything plus uh, that the ad libitum group had, but they are also in dietary restriction. These mice had the highest survival with, as you said, 15% mice never died. They cleared the tumor. Cleared the tumor. And also, uh, they were both antibacterial and tumor uh, immune. Yes, that is... This is such... I mean, this basic science study has such great implications on the translational front. It does. It does. And you think of how many uh, pathogens or encounters we have on a daily basis. Uh, you can appreciate the immune system's response at this point. <laughs> yeah. So, so overall, this study this study shows that dietary restriction somehow is is enhancing our our memory compartment of the immunity. And it also it also makes sense, you know. It, it, we I want to look at it from a different perspective. That our our we as an organism, our 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 body has involved in a way that we want to preserve this memory compartment. The reason that everywhere else the cellularity decreased, there was uh, even during dietary restriction, the bone marrow enriched these um, memory T cells. The bone marrow wants to save these T cells. Uh, it's it's like 
it's as if these are they are the libraries that cannot be destroyed that the organism realizes how important right. they are for survival right that even under dietary restriction regardless of what else happens in other parts of the body this compartment must survive right so jatin let's take it to a uh researcher's perspective right mm -hmm. so we know that diet is important for humans we know that uh human health rather we know that you know really taking care of yourself as far as exercise and um you know going to the doctor frequently is important to make sure your health is in check but let's look at from a researcher's perspective right so how often do we as researchers um really really evaluate our subjects diet you know because a mm -hmm. lot of times when we put these mice into studies or clinical studies uh they're just given the standardized diet yeah but we truly have no real you know uh perspective on what the subject should actually be eating during these diets either because as you know when when mom my mouse or mom mouse I, I know i call <laughs> them uh, very humanistic names but <laughs> when mom mouse is uh pregnant we give them high fat diets mm -hmm. right however after pregnancy she needs to get uh, or after birth she needs to be back on the uh, standardized diet because then that will increase uh inflammation in mom's system which mm -hmm. is not good for her not good for baby uh so they need to be on these low fat diets diets yeah how much of that do you think we uh explore when we think about these different disease states actually we we don't do that at all we we never it never occurs to us that are the the, di the diet that the mouse is receiving although all the mice are receiving the same diet but maybe there are certain diets that would be helpful in inducing a disease much better or worse right right I started writing a, um, a short review about the uh, dietary and nutritional relevance in um, different autoimmune disease models. And there's really not much literature um, designating the type of diet that each mouse or each disease state should have. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, how much information are we losing just based off of uh, standard care for the mouse during disease state? Yep. That's this is such an underexplored part of yeah. <laughs> the, I mean, the part that should be we should already know a lot about this. Yeah. Anyway, I I really like this paper, and <laughs> I I'm, I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be very interested to uh, discuss a lot more papers like these. Uh, and yeah, this uh, thanks to you we were able to do this today. Oh, cool. Thanks for inviting me. I really had an awesome time um, dissecting the whole thing with you. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. And with that, we'll be wrapping up this ex uh, this episode. Uh, thank you all whoever is listening to this. Um, we have a Facebook page where we sometimes share memes, both educational memes and memes that make no sense. <laughs> uh, just feel free to check those out and follow us on wherever you're listening to this. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. I don't even know where all I have submitted this podcast. So wherever you're <laughs> listening, just follow. That'll be it. Thanks for tuning in. It is me, Jatin, and joining me was Antia today. See you all. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. Bye.